Well, let me invite you to turn in your Bible to the Gospel of John, chapter 8, for just a few moments. Gospel of John, we're returning to our study of the Gospel of John, and uh, we're picking up a story that is quite familiar, even famous, and uh, stories stick with us in ways that mere statements obviously don't. That's one of the reasons why I love the stories that the Gideons tell us. Uh, the statistics uh, are significant and interesting and memorable, but it's the, it's the stories that we can't forget, right? That remind us of uh, the power of God's word and his faithfulness uh, to send it out and to uh, bring uh, a fruit from that work. And it's the same way with all kinds of stories, right? You can be told that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. But it's another thing to know the story of Jesus raising Lazarus. That story puts flesh on that truth. In the same way the Bible tells us that in the kingdom of God, everything is going to be set right. But it's the stories of Jesus healing the blind and the lame and the sick and casting out demons that show us in powerful ways that stick with us, what it means that God is going to make all things new and that God is going to set all things right. We know that God is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and that He did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. But perhaps it is the story of the woman caught in adultery that really sticks with us and plants those truths deep in our hearts. That's the story we're going to look at this morning. It uh, really starts with the last verse of John chapter 7, verse 53, and then into chapter 8 uh, through verse 11. Now there's one difficulty here that I want to acknowledge before we go any further. You may have noticed, or you may be noticing now in your Bible, that there's a note that says the earliest manuscripts do not have John seven fifty three. To 8.11. What that means is the oldest and best copies of the Gospel of John that we have don't have this story in this place. Now, what are we to do with that? Uh, the, the scholars who study these things and, and work diligently to make sure that we have the most accurate uh, copy of Scripture we possibly can... What they are doing is they're saying, we don't know with 100% confidence that this particular story was actually written by John. We just don't know. Because the earliest copies we have don't have it, it may not have been. But they have chosen to leave it in, right, in brackets in most translations, I think, uh, to signal their uncertainty. But it's not so uncertain that they've removed it entirely. So what do we do when we come to a passage like that? Should I just skip it and not preach it? Uh, that would certainly be one option. Um, but that's probably what I would do if they hadn't included it at all. But they have included it with this note. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to preach the passage. We're going to talk about the passage. It's one of the most beloved stories uh, in the scripture. And here's what we know. Nothing in this story, aside from the event itself, nothing in this story adds to or changes anything that we know about Jesus from the rest of the Bible. So whether this story was actually written by John or not doesn't really change anything. 
right? Because it's not like one, when we read this story, we go, oh my goodness, Jesus is gracious to sinners. We didn't see that anywhere else. We see that all over the place, right? It's not inconsistent with the rest of the Bible. It doesn't change anything dramatic, right? And so we just have to acknowledge this story may or may not be original to John. We don't know. But what we do know is the things that it tells us about Jesus are consistent with what the rest of the Bible says about Jesus. So we have no hesitation in talking about this story, learning from this story, because all it does is reinforce what we know about Jesus from the rest of what John wrote and the other gospel authors wrote. So if you want to know more about how that works, right, just ask me. I don't want to spend like 20 minutes in the sermon talking about the details of how all this stuff gets decided. But if you have questions, I'd be happy to answer them and talk about them at greater length. But for now, let's just read and listen to this story and then talk about what it reminds us and teaches us about Jesus and about ourselves. It says, They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Remember that they were at the Feast of Booths in Jerusalem at this time. And then it says, verse 2, Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses, or in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Now, what we have in this story is not anything unusual. It's the kind of thing we see happening again and again in the life of Jesus. It is a test that the Pharisees bring upon Jesus in order to try to entrap him. They want some ammunition against him. They want him to say something that they can use against him so that they can bring some charge against him so that they can get rid of him. And so what they do is they bring before him a woman who has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, there's no question Right, That adultery is wrong, that it is sinful. The Bible makes that quite clear. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Right, So this woman has been caught in sin. But there are a couple of things that are off here. A couple of things that are suspicious here. Let's start with this. They bring this woman to him who's been caught in adultery, and they say... This woman was caught in the act of adultery. Where's the other person that was caught in the act of adultery? She couldn't have been caught by herself. Right? So where's the man? 
seems a little suspicious, right? And they try to trap him by saying in verse 5 that in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, here's something that the law says in Deuteronomy 22, verse 22. It says, if a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. So where's the man? Where's the other party to this sin? They didn't bring him. This smells like a setup. Right? This is suspicious. The test is here. They're telling, they remind Jesus, okay, here's what the law said. The law of Moses said we should stone this woman. So do you agree with Moses? Well, why is that a test? Why is that a trap? Well, the Jews don't have the authority to execute anyone because they're under the rule of the Romans. That's why when they want to get rid of Jesus, they can't do it themselves. They bring him to Pilate and ask Pilate to crucify them, crucify him. When they bring him to Pilate, uh, John 18 says, Pilate said to them, take him yourselves, judge him by your own law. And then it says, the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Not against Old Testament law. The Old Testament law does tell them to put people to death at times. Evidently, it was not legal for them under Roman law to execute anyone. Certain things they could try and bring to justice under their own laws, but not something that required capital punishment. So here's Jesus' choice that they've put before him. On the one hand, you can say, I affirm and uphold the law of Moses and this woman has to die, and then I'm going to be in trouble with Rome. Or I can say, the Romans won't let us do that, even though the law of Moses says that we should, we can't do that, and then they're going to say, well, what kind of Messiah are you pretending to be if you won't even affirm the law of Moses? It seems that Jesus has no way to respond that won't get him into trouble with somebody. That's their plan. But here's the thing we know from reading the Gospels. Nobody ever traps Jesus. Nobody ever outmaneuvers him. Nobody ever outsmarts him. Nobody ever pulls one over on him. Nobody ever puts him in a situation that he doesn't know how to handle or sets a trap for him that he doesn't know how to get out of. Here's what we need to remember. Sometimes we do that. Sometimes we try to twist God's arm. Sometimes we try to find a loophole. Sometimes we try to find an end around around Jesus thinking, well, if I do it this way, or if I say this, or I act this way, then he can't fill in the blank. You can't outsmart him. You can't outmaneuver him. You can't hide anything from him. Right? We need to learn from those who tried and failed that it never does us any good to try to pull one over on God. To try to outmaneuver God. To try to bargain with him in a way where he can't you know, get out of it. Where we hold all the cards. It just doesn't ever work. It didn't work here. Jesus initially ignored the question, right? He just 
bends down and starts writing with his finger on the ground. Of course, people love to speculate about what he was writing, and wouldn't we love to know, right? There are all kinds of guesses we could make, some of them better than others, but the truth is we just don't know. John didn't tell us, and so we can't say with any uh, certainty what he was writing about. It's a mystery to us. But as he was doing that, verse 7 says, they continued to ask him. They're continuing to press the question, what are you going to do? What do you say we should do? We are not going to let you out of this. So here's what Jesus says. Verse 7, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. That one brilliant statement changes the whole conversation. I imagined it changed the whole atmosphere. As people began to think about what he said and what it meant for them. Who in that crowd of people could pronounce judgment upon her? Jesus. He's the only sinless one in the crowd. I know not everybody in that crowd is guilty of the same thing this woman is. Some of them probably were, but not all of them. But all of them were guilty of something. All of them were sinners except for Jesus. And Jesus says in this instance, the only person who ought to throw a stone at this woman is the person here who doesn't have any sin of their own. And then he went back to writing on the ground. He just let them stew on that for a little bit. Let them think about it. Let that word begin to work on their consciences. And it says in verse 9 that when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. Now, it doesn't tell us why it was the older ones that left first, but I, I feel like I have a pretty good guess. The longer you live, the more aware you are of how you've sinned, the ways you've fallen short. And the older guys in the crowd were the first ones to say, well, I know that's not me. I'm not without sin. I'm not picking up any stones today to throw at this woman. And the next thing you knew, it was just Jesus and the woman. He alone is sinless. He alone has the authority to pronounce final judgment, right? The Father has given all judgment to the Son, to Jesus. So what is he going to do? Verse 10 says, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Now why did he say that? He doesn't say... Those guys think adultery is a big deal, but I don't. He doesn't say, what you did is not a problem. He doesn't say, I mean, everybody sins, so let's not worry about it. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying she's not guilty. But he is saying he's not going to condemn her. He's not going to pronounce judgment against her for her guilt. Why? John has already told us back in chapter 3. We all know John.
John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But then verse uh, 17 goes on to say, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Condemning this woman or anybody else is not why Jesus came. Now, will there come a day when he pronounces judgment? Yes, there will. And those who have not repented by then, who have not turned back to Jesus by then, they will suffer his just judgment. There's no doubt about that. But what is he doing right here? And what are we to be doing right now? He did not come to pronounce condemnation against the world. Even against people who are clearly guilty of very serious sins. Jesus does not take this opportunity to give a lecture against adultery. He doesn't. There are some Christians who probably would. Some people who name the name of Jesus who probably would. That's not what Jesus does. If Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, then neither did he send us into the world to pronounce condemnation against the world. That's not why he was here, and that's not why we are here. There are plenty of people, again, who name the name of Jesus, who love to pronounce condemnation. Isn't that true? A lot of it. They're not taking their cue from Jesus. They're not. Because Jesus did not come to get in the face of people who are sinful and broken and lost and tell them how terrible they are and how worthy of condemnation they are. He didn't. He came to save them. He came to tell them that there was another way. He came to tell them there was a way to be forgiven. He came to lay down his life so that they could be forgiven. And he sent us out into the world to tell them that he came so that they could be forgiven. That's why he came and that's why he left us here. Not to pronounce condemnation, but to preach the gospel. To bring good news. To tell people there's a way to be washed clean. That's why we're here. That's what faithfully following Jesus looks like. Do we need to warn people that there is judgment coming if they don't repent? Yeah, absolutely. But there is a way to do that. That comes from a heart of love that desires to see them be saved. Just like there's a way to do that from a heart of animosity that actually just wants to see them condemned. One of those is Christian and one of those is not. One of those is faithful to Jesus and one of those is not. And we have to be honest. None of us have hearts that always reflect the heart of Christ. None of us love our neighbor as ourselves all the time, all the way. We all fall short here. But that should just remind us 
that the person who's caught in sin, who we may be tempted to condemn, is in need of grace and forgiveness just like we are. And I don't want to be condemned, though I know I deserve it. And Jesus was merciful to me. And so I should be merciful to that person as well. Because in the grand scheme, I'm not any different than they are. The last thing Jesus says to her, says, go and from now on, sin no more. And Jesus is not soft on sin. Right? He's not excusing or ignoring sin. What he's saying is, I didn't come to condemn but to save. And what I want for you is a life that is now free from the sin that you are currently enslaved to. Don't, don't give in to that anymore. Go be free of that now. Go and sin no more. There's two parts Right to that gospel message. The first is that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is forgiveness, salvation, righteousness for those who are in Christ. But the second part is, once you come to know Jesus, He calls you to go and sin no more. He sets you free from sin so that you no longer have to live in sin. The second part can't be separated from the first part. You can't go and sin no more unless you're first forgiven. And if you're really forgiven, your desire is going to be to go and sin no more. Now, you're not going to be able to do that fully. right? You are still going to sin. There's no doubt. But the desire of your heart, the posture of your life, your desire, new desire that you've been given in Christ is going to be to go back to that sin no more. But to leave it behind. Jesus forgives us not to make us comfortable with sin, but to set us free from it. So don't go back. You won't be able to live sinlessly, but make it your aim to go and sin no more. And when you find someone who's not yet free, remember who set you free. Remember why he came. That the love of Christ might flow from you to them as it did from him to you. Let's pray.